Turn with me, please, to our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 11. I hope to uh, preach on this text this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning. I've just gone through my longest period of not preaching. I was trying to figure it up. There was a time back in 1980 when I was between two churches. So that's how far back it goes since I've had this long a break from preaching. But I I think it's like riding a bicycle, you know, you can get back on and and still do it here. Actually, it's been very refreshing to hear um, faithful preaching at the church we're attending in Manchester, uh, the Amoskeg Presbyterian Church. So actually, uh, the text we're looking at this morning and next Sunday morning, and the text we're looking at tonight... uh, have great overlap as far as the the basic theme of the true God being a sovereign God. And uh, we'll be looking at that, especially from the viewpoint of salvation uh, in the Matthew 11 text. Uh, But we'll also look at it from that viewpoint in the book of Esther. And if you have not read Esther recently, I don't know if I, I was going to try to remind Nathan did he do that? So how many, did some of you read through Esther or skim through it again? Uh, that will help because I, I didn't know how long a summary to do before I get to my main sermon tonight. But we, we'll be looking at the idol of God as the God of providence tonight. So Matthew chapter 11, we're reading verses 25 through 30. This is God's holy word. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, we come in this text to... um, one of the thorniest problems in, uh, we might call it, biblical theology, the, the biblical truth that God gives to us. And that is the relationship between God's absolute control of all things, of all events, of all his creatures, and true moral responsibility of all rational creatures. And God made two kinds of rational creatures uh, the human race and the angelic race. And you don't become an angel when you die as a Christian. Those are angels are a different entity altogether. But from both angels and men, God has made it clear there is true moral responsibility. We are responsible for the choices we make. But God has always also said that He is His plan includes all that happens. And all his creatures and all their actions, as the Westminster Confession words it. The Bible teaches that God is in absolute control. 
Think of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And I believe in the context there, if you don't allow that to mean all things in the, the broadest sense, I'm not sure uh, a more uh, limited use of that expression would really fit that context there. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 16.4 uh, goes even so far as this, The Lord has made all things for himself, even the wicked, for the day of judgment. It doesn't mean God made people wicked, but even the wicked are part of his eternal plan. Uh, because God never loses control, you see. Uh, all rational creatures, though, and this is the other side of the coin, are morally responsible for their sin. This is seen in the eternal punishment of the angels who fell with Lucifer, and of all mankind who in Adam and Eve fell, and uh, particularly those who do not repent and believe the gospel. Matthew chapter 25 Verse 41, Jesus said, or Jesus speaks and he says, Then he, the Son of Man, will also say to those in the left hand, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment with the righteous into eternal life. There's moral responsibility. There's an accountability to God on the day of judgment on the part of all angels, and I include there the fallen angels and all mankind. Those who believe the gospel do so by grace alone, as the, as the Heavenly Father by the Holy Spirit draws them to his eternal Son. And this doctrine has been referred to as the doctrine of irresistible grace. And irresistible grace, that doctrine is never meant, that, that expression is used by the uh, early uh, Reformed Church did not mean that you don't want to become a Christian and God makes you become one anyway. What it does mean is that God so works in the hearts of his elect that wild horses, at a, at a certain point, wild horses can't, as the old saying goes, can't keep you from coming. You want to come. It's interesting that we only turn to Christ because of sovereign grace, and we never do a more free act up to that point in our life than when we turn to Christ. There's, a, there's what looks like a paradox there. There's, there's irony in that. Uh, when I finally become enslaved to the true God by the working of his grace and spirit, I finally become free. I'm more free then than I've ever been in all my life as a sinner. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You know, if the Father gives us to the Son, we will come. But we do come. He doesn't say he will come for us or work in us like robots or automatums. We really do come when he works within us. Uh, verse 44 of, the, of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's divine sovereignty. Or how about 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31? But of God you are in Christ Jesus, who 
became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I can't even brag about my decision to become a Christian. I made a true decision, but I have to give the credit and glory to the grace of the true and living God. How do we bring all this together? How how can we bring these two doctrines together of God's absolute sovereignty over all things and all creatures and all their actions and true responsibility, moral responsibility, as far as angels and men? Well, I believe we can't fully comprehend, comprehend at this time in this world how it exactly works together. I refer to this as supra-rational, above man's unglorified reason. I don't believe it's irrational. I don't believe God often argues in the scriptures on the basis of the fact that he never contradicts himself. And Abraham one time uh, in his prayer in regard to um, uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, if you think about his prayer... What he's saying is, God, you claimed you're a God who doesn't contradict himself and that uh, you, you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Therefore, that's the basis of my request to not, you know, if there, if there are, he gets down to what, five, is it? If there are five righteous people there, not to destroy the city. And God agrees with him. If there had been five people there, that would have done it because God won't contradict himself. But that doesn't mean we understand exactly how these things work together at this time. I think Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, which is on God's decree, the idea of God's plan, um, is very helpful. And it reminds us there that God has ordained the means as well as the ends. And God makes use of secondary causes, such as the evil choices of evil creatures, for which choices he is not morally responsible, but has sovereignly overridden those choices for his own eternal purpose. And he's known from eternity and planned from eternity to do that. God is infinite. We are finite. We understand only what he has told us, that we might respond to him in the way that he has commanded. I'm thinking now of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Some of you probably will recognize this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are just there are things that he's he hasn't told us. And I used to express to my congregation of Merrimack, the Bible is on a need to know basis. What do we need to know to get right with God, to glorify God, to be reconciled to him and his son, and it doesn't go into other things. You know, there, there are many things it doesn't, doesn't answer. And only God could have the definitive answer to those other things. And he does have definitive answers. But he's not told them to us. We will know more in eternity. He's promised us that. David says that the righteous will be let in on the secret of the Lord in one of his psalms. I just love that, that text. Uh, For no other reason, we should want to believe the gospel so we can go to heaven because we get let in on the secret of things. Have you ever thought about the implication of that? That if you refuse to believe the gospel and you go to hell, all those puzzling things, even, even finite earthly puzzling things in your own life, 
He's made no promises he's going to explain them to you. As a matter of fact, I think he implies there that you've rejected his word, you're suffering in hell. You don't, it's not all explained to you. You do have to recognize who Jesus Christ is and who God is, but he doesn't explain why, you know, um, your brother died. But for those who are in heaven, I think this is part of what's made known to us. We'll look back and we'll see that everything he did was for our good. And right now, we take that only by faith in his statement that that is so. He promises us that for us, it's all working together for our good. But most of the time, at least in my life, and I suspect in yours, I don't know how it's working together for my good. Once in a while, after the difficult time, sometimes years later, I can look back and say, oh, wow, look at that. I can see now, at least partly, what God was doing. But I have some other things in my life that I'm an old man now, and I still don't know why that happened that way. But I believe I will later. And I believe it was for my good, whether I understand how or not. Now, in our text, we have this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the speaker here in affirming in one of the strongest ways the absolute sovereignty of God in regard to that which is most important, the salvation and the damnation of sinners. And he's also one of the strongest worded and most compelling invitations to sinners to make the right choice and to come to him. And we have the two things together. And what do we do with this? Well, first of all, are we listening to his invitation? You know, him telling us that he has ordained all things that take place doesn't give us a right to sit back and do nothing. He's made that clear. Only those that uh, the Father reveals the Son to and the Son reveals the Father to will come. But we don't have a right to sit back and say, well, I won't come because I don't think he's revealed it to me. We'll be accountable if we don't come. And if we do come... The glory is all his. Jesus gives this incredible invitation here. Ann and I read a book that um, I think Nathan, Pastor Nathan, gave us. I think he was the one that gave it to us for Christmas. Um, What is that, Gentle and Lowly, I think? He may have mentioned it to you. And um, there are times in the book you felt like, you've got to state the other side. And just when I would think that, he would state the other side. You know, he he would give a warning. But the main thrust of the book, how many of you have read it? Any of you? The main thrust is uh, Jesus really is giving an earnest call and a merciful call for sinners to come. And, and there's this great part in the book where, where um, he says, when you come and as a Christian and you've stumbled and you ask God's forgiveness, do you feel like you've got to plead and beg and... And almost as if Jesus is there, you know, oh no, you know, Bill sinned again. I got to take him back because I promised I would. No, there's an earnestness, an eagerness on the Savior's part. We need to see it that way. It's important to our, our self-consciousness as a Christian as far as our relationship with God as one who is in Christ that we understand his eagerness 
to receive us and to pour out his love upon us again. Let me give you some background just real quickly in this chapter. In the first 16 verses of this chapter, uh, John the Baptist, while in prison, goes through a time of confusion. uh, And the people are confused regarding his ministry in person. And Jesus warns the people that they had better take seriously John's message and believe in him, in Jesus. Uh, that's, that's really what John's message was. And then verses 17 through 19, and I find this interesting, the fickleness of Jesus' generation of, the, of Jews as far as their contradictory response to Jesus with their response to John. And I think this is a sort of prototype of all generations since. I've known people who do exactly what Jesus describes there. You have those people who complain about the austerity of God's holy law. You know, God puts us in a straitjacket. And at the same time, they complain about how easy it is to get for horrible sinners to get right with God by believing the gospel. It's a, it's, it's a contradiction there, isn't there? And, and both, both sides of that flow from a legalistic heart. You know, my legalism, I think, well, I'm okay. You're not okay, but I'm okay. You know, God ought to receive me. I don't know about you. Um, and then we also complain because God is merciful. And that's, that's legalism there. And that's how Jesus deals with that. And then in verses 20 through 24, he's continuing with this idea of, the, of unbelief. And he says... There were those places he did the most miracles, and they have the most accountability. Here we're to that idea of human responsibility again. They are most responsible. There's a greater judgment the more Christ has manifested his love and power. Now think about how that relates to us who have had the entire Bible at our disposal our whole lives. How accountable we are. To God and to to come to Jesus Christ and to give our lives to Him. So that's the background. It's, it's unbelief contrasted with true faith. And if God is in control, why are so many unbelievers? And how can God not be blamed for their unbelief if He's in control? And that's where we come to verses 25 through 30. The answer: God's absolute sovereignty and a call that emphasizes our personal responsibility to receive this free invitation and come. Both are affirmed. We are challenged to believe and to come. Jesus speaks, did you notice this, first to the Father in verses 25 through 27 of our text, and then he speaks to us in verses 28 through 30. So I'm just going to cover now the remainder of my time this morning. When do you usually end, Bill? What's about the... Okay, all right. Um, Verses 25 through 27 is how far we're going to get this morning. And here we're looking at the absolute sovereignty of God in the salvation and, therefore, the damnation of sinners. Now, probably all of you have thought through this, you you who are adults anyway, um, if you're coming to a Reformed kind of church, that... If it's God's absolute sovereignty as far as who's going to be saved or not, by implication, or by default, however you want to see it, he's also determined who's not going to be saved. 
and so that sometimes is called double predestination. It can be presented in a kind of a, almost a harsh kind of manner. That's not how Jesus presents it here. Remember, it's in the context of those who have chosen not to believe. They rejected John's message, then they reject Jesus' message. They reject John because he's too legalistic. They reject Jesus because he's not legalistic enough. And show this basic inconsistency of the unregenerate heart. And it's in that context Jesus makes the affirmation he makes here. Now, if you look at verses 25 through 27, how could Jesus have stated the idol of God's sovereignty and our salvation in any stronger terms or more clearly? You know, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That, that's, that's really strong. That's a very strong statement. Why are so many Christians afraid to take Jesus at his word here? Because many of them are. I think true Christians struggle with this. They're afraid, I think, to trust in God's goodness beyond what we have the ability to understand at this time. You'll find that you know, there's more. this isn't the only tension, you might say, in biblical theology. I believe that God is one eternal God and three eternal persons. That he is eternally one in one sense as the essence, and he's eternally three in, in, as persons. And I don't know how that works, but I believe it because I believe the Bible teaches it. You have both truths there, and all you can do is hold on to both of them. And I don't, I don't understand what I like to think of as the mechanics of it. How, do, how does it actually function? And the same thing with the person of Jesus. I believe he's, he's truly God. God of God, as the old creed put it. And he, he became true man without sin. Truly man of men. And he's only one person. It's not a split personality. It's not, you know, it's not half God, half man. These were all old heresies the church dispelled early on. I don't know how it works. I don't, I don't know the mechanics of the incarnation. But I believe it. I, I based my whole eternal life on the truth of it. Uh, and what you will find is if... If you go to an extreme in one of these, these areas where there's this tension that we don't understand, if you try to make it completely understandable, you'll, you'll fall off into false doctrine. You'll begin to neglect one side of the coin or the other. And that's, that's where Jehovah Witnesses and some of these other groups come from. They deny Christ's deity. They stress his humanity. Uh, believe it or not, in the early church, it was the other way around. There were many who believed he was truly divine, but they couldn't, because of certain, certain kinds of Greek philosophy, certain kinds of dualism, they had a hard time believing that he could be God and man. You know, uh, to become a man was like a nasty thing for God to do. So they couldn't. So they taught he disappeared to be a man. And so they had the opposite problem. These people who said he was God but didn't become a true man. Well, if he didn't take true humanity, then his death wasn't a true death. And the early church fathers said that our salvation is not a true salvation. It's only as real as his, his death was. So I'm, what I'm saying here is that we have to be careful here, too. We do have what's called hyper-Calvinist. 
They've run with the doctrine of God's sovereignty to the point where it's as if they've totally pushed aside the idea that there is true responsibility. As if we're, we are robots, programmed. They won't use that, that expression, but they're very close to it in their thinking. And then you have those who deny um, any aspect of God being in control. And, and we have this free will that, that you know, God has to almost come and get on his knees and beg us you know, uh, to come. And that's, that's not true to the, the scriptural teaching either. So we, want, we don't want to try to, uh, what, what we aren't able to understand yet, you don't want to try to force it into something you can because you're going to go astray. And that's just what we see in church history. So what are we told here? Verse 25, God receives all the glory for the salvation of those who are saved, and he's also eternally glorified in the damnation of those who are not saved. Verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Let's think about those babes first, the, the, those who are saved. The Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, has revealed these things to certain people as if teaching babies. That's what it's saying. Now this is part of the proof that God is God and Lord over all. He is glorified in the salvation of those who are converted by grace. Romans 9 verse 15 and verse 23. Uh, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have compa- mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. In that whole context, God's sovereignty and our salvation glorifies him as the true God and magnifies his grace. Uh, for that, you could also read that opening uh, first half of Ephesians chapter 1, where he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and each of those sections ends with to the glory of his grace you know because he has saved us uh, by the glory of his grace or to the glory of his grace so he's talking about god having mercy on some and it says that god revealed and he reveals by the holy spirit using the preaching of the gospel that's how god opens up our hearts to christ uh second corinthians chapter four verses five through seven paul says and the we here is in the context is talking about the ministers of the gospel that preach the gospel. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. A reference back to Genesis 1, right? The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, he's talking about the ministers now, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This is an incredible text here. We're in this darkness of mind and of heart, a spiritual darkness. And God has to break through that darkness and create light. Like he did in the beginning when he said, let there be light and there was light on the first day of creation. In the very beginning. God, when you heard the gospel preached, and it was that appointed time for you to understand and believe the gospel, 
It was like God had said, let there be light. And that word of God used by the Holy Spirit, you had light in your mind. You understood the gospel. Has it been surprising to you sometimes how smart some of the unbelievers can be about earthly matters? You know, they might have a PhD in philosophy or something like that. And they just don't seem to understand what you're saying about what the gospel is. They can't comprehend it. You go through this, this whole conversation. You keep emphasizing, you know, we're sinners. Uh, we can't put ourselves right with God. We have to have the righteousness of Christ. You have to trust in Christ. You get done and they say, yeah, I, I understand, but I'm just not religious like you are. And you, you, you know, let me try again here. You know, they, they just not comprehend it. They see it still as some form of kind of legalism. You know, you were, you were born a religious person, so that's why you, you do this. Um, it really requires this work of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus says that the Father has to reveal this uh, to the babes. What does he have to reveal? He says these things, and I think in the context we're talking what we would call the gospel. The good news of who Jesus really is, God and man, what he will do, die and rise again for us, and the promises of new life and deliverance by his grace to all who trust in him. The the Holy Spirit has to open up your heart and mind to take that in. If you grew up in the church like I did, did, you've heard the gospel preached and I believe I was converted, uh, regenerated probably at an early age. It, it just seems like the simplest story ever in some ways. And yet, I remember trying to, uh, got in high school and I got serious about personal evangelism and just being shocked. Again, like I said, uh, you, you go through this scenario and you explain things and it's obvious this intelligent friend doesn't understand a word you just said. And the only thing that can explain that is the darkness of the human heart and the necessity of these things being revealed by God's holy word as used by the Spirit so that we can believe the truth. Who is it who God reveals these to? To the babes or babies. As contrasted with the wise and prudent. That is, those, those who think they are wise and prudent. The babes are those who come as little children speaking spiritually. Jesus said we have to become what? Like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. And by the way, we, this text is telling us we can't make ourselves the kind of little child he's talking about. This is a work of the Holy Spirit to humble us. And that's what we're looking at. Humility before God and before one another. This is why... It'd be interesting, you know, I said, how many of you got converted after some great failure in your life that whether others saw it as a great failure, you know, you felt like you had really tripped like you'd never had before as far as morality. Because most congregations I've known, there have always been a handful of people that, that they had to stumble into some sin they never thought they would commit. Now, I grew up in the Bible Belt, maybe that's part of it. You know, you grew up thinking you were good, you were in the Bible Belt, and then you... Uh, maybe you tell a lie. I mean, I've known people that, that had been raised in the Bible Belt and they thought lying was one of the worst sins, and it is. And then they'd, they'd fall into a lie, and the Holy Spirit would use that to show them that they were sinners. They had convinced themselves they weren't really that bad until they did something 
that they had never thought they would do, and that they condemned in others. And that's the babes here. It's humility, confessing our sinful weakness and inability, trusting the one who can fix all the problems, a willingness to submit to his direction and repent and believe. I was thinking, you know, about becoming like a little child. I have this memory. I was probably, I think, four years old. We were living in, in, a, in a farmhouse in Illinois, and I'd gotten one of those really deep splinters into my finger. And, of course, it was hurting, and I was crying. And my mom and dad had me before the bathroom sink, and they were working on trying to get it out. And finally, one of them had to hold me because I didn't want them to touch it because they knew there was no other way to help me. And, um, and they kept saying, now, we're, we're not trying to hurt you, Alan. We have to do this so it will quit hurting. And even though I was struggling, in my heart I knew that these were people that would always want my good. That was actually part of, of, a, of a child, see. I, I trusted. I had good parents. I had godly Christian parents, so therefore I trusted them. And uh, that's really what it, what it means here to become like a babe. Do I think I can fix myself, make myself right? Then I'm one of the, quote, wise and prudent who, who is in spiritual blindness. Do I understand that only God's grace and Christ can enable me to understand the truth and believe and embrace the truth and have a new heart in life? Then I become one of the babes. That would be the work of regeneration, rebirth. Now, he also talks about the unsaved. Uh, he talks, he says, he prays to the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, who has hidden these things from the wise and prudent. And again, the fact that he hides them from certain ones proves that he is God, that he's Lord over all. His justice, his law is glorified in the damnation of those who have themselves chosen their sin over his free invitations, who have chosen their iniquities and transgressions over God's gracious offers of deliverance in Christ. Again, Romans chapter 9, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You have... People prepared for glory, and it glorifies God's grace. You have people prepared for destruction who by their own choice have rejected the invitation to life, and therefore they glorify God's justice and their eternal condemnation. Some of you, like myself, may have enjoyed reading some of C.S. Lewis's, not just his storybooks, but uh, some of his essays. And... Um, is it in great divorce at the end? There's this great statement about, you know, those who are in hell, God answered their prayer. Uh, God said to them, thy will be done. This is what you chose. You didn't want me. You were very emphatic on that. You didn't want my son. You didn't want his gospel. So that's what I'm going to give you, what you asked for, which is darkness and lostness. And, and God will say to those who have prayed to him, thy will be done, eternal life. They're going to get, they've, they've chosen the Father's will. And that's what Jesus is looking at here on both sides here. 
Notice he says that God has hidden these things in the wise and prudent by not revealing, by not giving the enlightenment of the Spirit through the preaching of the Word. Our minds in our sin are darkened spiritually, and so Satan deludes us unless, again, God breaks through with the light of his Son, breaks through our darkness. And so the fault is the sinner's. The sinner really does choose the darkness. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul says this, I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you, you Gentile Christians, should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness in their, of their heart, who being past filling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You know, there's, you know, it's like with Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then there are texts that, after that that say his heart was, was hardened. It's, a, it's in a passive. And then it goes on to explain further God hardened his heart. But how did God do it by him choosing? God, God did not put any intervention there. Pharaoh became exactly what every sinner will become. Someone who has a hardened heart, who will reject, who, who won't even fill the power of God as the ten plagues are taking place. Yeah, he absolutely refuses to recognize the power of Jehovah and to obey Jehovah. And everything is going wrong. And, and everything that goes wrong, Moses tells him ahead of time, it's going to go wrong. Um, you know, he, he's that hardened, that darkened. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here in our text, we find that uh, the Father uh, has hidden these things. Again, that these things are a saving understanding of the gospel truths, particularly in regard to who Jesus is. And again, it's even worse, if you think about it, than Pharaoh and the ten plagues. I see Jesus raise people from the dead. I see Jesus give sight to blind people. I see him enable deaf people to hear, the lame to walk, with a spoken word. And I refuse to believe his claims that he's the true son of God. Uh, it's, It's from our point of view, now that our minds are enlightened, it's really incredible that you could remain an unbeliever in the midst of all that. But they do remain unbelievers. Wise and prudent, those unhumbled in their sin, proudly looking to themselves or to the creature rather than the creator. I think of 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 22 through 29. We who have been called, effectually called of the Holy Spirit, see, we believe that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the word of the cross is that power and wisdom. But to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Of course, they, they wanted more of a powerful military kind of king. And to the Greeks, it's, it's foolishness. It, you know, this, 
this incredible story of God loving us and his son coming and dying for us is foolishness. There was a series, I forget which one it was, that Martin Lloyd-Jones did back when he was at Westminster Chapel in London uh, in the 20th century. And there was a point there, he had summarized the gospel and he says, why do some of you have problems with that? You know, that God is willing to forgive sinners, that God has sent his son to die for sinners, and yet some of you act as if God's insulting you. Why, think of all the horrible messages in the world, and you're having a problem with that message? And yet, they do because they don't see, they don't understand. Jesus said in John 9, 39, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may be made blind. Whereas those who think that they can see in themselves are really blind, those who recognize their blindness are given sight. It's the same thing as those who are like babes versus those who are wise and prudent. The point of God's creation of all things and of his revelation of himself to the rational creatures is that his infinite sufficiency might be glorified in our absolute dependence on him. Before our fall into sin, we absolutely needed our creator just as creatures, unfallen creatures. We needed him when Eve refused and Adam refused to obey God's command. They were saying they could do it the way the devil was, was telling them to do it instead of God's way. They quit depending on God's sufficiency. And um, if that's true, as far as creatures, creator, think of sinners and redeemer. If we needed him before we fell into sin, how much more so do we need him now when he comes to us by his grace? That's a summary of Jonathan Edwards' sermon. He goes a lot longer than that. Um, God glorified in man's dependence. One of the best extra-biblical pieces of writing I ever read. Uh, you can find it online. God glorified in man's dependence. And it's from Romans chapter 9. The impenitent, ungodly people prove that God is God negatively. Because uh, by turning away from him, they suffer forever. And those whom the Spirit humbles and converts by his grace prove it positively that God is God. Because it's only by totally depending on him and what he says in the gospel that they enjoy glory forever. But all creation is going to demonstrate God's greatness one way or another. That's the irony. Those who reject the gospel and don't want to give God any credit or due, they're still going to have to for all eternity. All creatures are going to magnify him one way or another at the end. Well, verse 26 of our text, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, the omniscient, infinitely good and truthful God affirms the rightness of all this about his divine sovereignty. The Son of God says that these things are true and good before God. The God of the Bible, the true God, the God will all stand before, the all-knowing and infinitely wise God sees all of this, all that he's just said in verse 25 about God revealing to some and hiding from others, sees it as good. And we need to trust him and accept these difficult matters as good. Good in themselves and good for our soul. And then verse 27, 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God has committed the working out of all of this to his Son. Everything is delivered or entrusted to the Son, all authority to carry out this great eternal plan of redemption. No one is knowing the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows them in their divine essence and in their eternal fullness, of course, but that's not the context here. No one knows them in a, in a way unto salvation except those the Son chooses to reveal the Father to them. And in revealing the Father to them, he's revealing who he really is. For he alone uh, is... Uh, for the Father alone knows the essence of who Jesus is. And actually this is part of the whole theme of the Gospel of John. You could say that um, verse 27 is a good summary of the Gospel of John. You know, uh, the Gospel of John emphasizes God's sovereignty. And all, actually, you're familiar with the expression, the five points of Calvinism. You can find them all taught very clearly in the Gospel of John. And... Um, Jesus says here, you know, no one knows God unless the Father, uh, unless the Son makes the Father known to us. Do we see the authority given to the Son here? Think about the claim Jesus makes here in verse 27. Only someone who was God can make this claim. how, how How could you say... I'm the only one who knows who the Father is, really. And no one understands me except the Father and the one that I allow to understand me. Now, if any of us made that kind of statement about ourselves, well, we deserve to be locked up somewhere for our own good and the good of all those around us. But you know, remember C.S. Lewis? Lewis was actually quoting one of the early church fathers when he did the, uh, what is it, the um, liar... Lord, lunatic, kind of thing. One of the early church fathers had already said that. You know, if, if he's not the Lord, you're only left with a couple options here. You'd have to be crazy to make that kind of statement if it wasn't really true and if you weren't God. And yet Jesus makes the statement. What authority we see manifested here of the Son? His absolutely unique position stated here. Because by him alone we can know God in a saving way. Jesus Christ is the only way to God and to heaven. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. His authority is what enables us to go and preach the gospel. We're not asking for permission from the unsaved to proclaim the gospel of Christ. We have the commission from the Lord of lords and the king of kings, the risen savior. And it's also a promise that he will save those that that gospel was ordained for. We're going forth with that kind of power that's not in us, but we are commissioned to take forth the gospel and his power is at work to save sinners. John 17, verses 2 and 3 as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.
he gives eternal life to as many as the Father has given to him. So have you given to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the glory for your salvation and for all the eternal consequences of your salvation? Do you give God the glory and God alone for the assurance you have of heaven in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? The bottom line purpose of your eternal deliverance from sin and hell is God's glory. Our absolute dependence on him who alone is truly sufficient is seen in our salvation by his sovereign grace alone. Do we see this? And if so, understand that there are certain perks that come with this great doctrine of salvation being in every way from the Lord himself. And I'm going to deal with this more next week. Comfort in our times of failure. If you believe God is absolutely sovereign in your salvation, there's such comfort in your times of stumbling or failure. Encouragement in our times of affliction. And motivation to live a holy life. The irony is that you can stay motivated longer and better from a principle of sovereign grace than you can from any amount of legalism. Legalism can only motivate you for a few minutes and then it leads to despair. But the gospel of grace actually motivates me to keep on keeping on because it's not up to me in the end. And therefore, knowing that he's going to continue and complete what he began motivates me to, to use the means of grace and to grow in holiness. Well, let's-